KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today, we are talking about the SCOTUS decisions on affirmative action and student loan forgiveness. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. We'll have a legal analysis of the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action. So the idea of affirmative action is to uh, give those people an edge to remove the impediment that has occurred by having those shackles for so long. Then we'll continue the discussion with a look at where Asian Americans fit into the issue of affirmative action and hear local reaction on student loan forgiveness and the impact of campus diversity. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Supreme Court has effectively ended race-conscious college admissions in a stunning blow to affirmative action. The 6-3 ruling has drawn sharp criticism from the Biden administration and cast uncertainty on what the future of college admissions in the United States will look like. In addition to the ruling on affirmative action, the court also handed down a number of other major rulings. Joining me now to break this down and other rulings is legal analyst Dan Eaton, partner in the San Diego firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. He also teaches business ethics and employment law at San Diego State University. Dan, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Good to be with you, Jade. It's always good to have you. Um, there's a pair of cases involved here, one involving UNC, that's the University of North Carolina, and one involving your alma mater, Harvard. What can you tell us about both of them? The question in uh, those cases is whether, in the case of UNC, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, bars the consideration of race in college admission. Uh, When you're talking about Harvard, which is my law school alma mater, uh, the question is whether uh, Title VI, which prohibits uh, racial discrimination by any institution that receives federal funding bars the consideration of race in college and university admissions. That uh, Those were the issues in those two cases. Now, what Chief Justice Roberts did in his analysis was he said, well, the equal protection analysis also applies uh, to the title, the six analysis. So we're going to treat them the same, even though Harvard as a private institution is not subject 
uh, to the restrictions of the uh, constitutional command of the Equal Protection Clause. But the analysis ends up being the same. So it's a distinction without a difference from his perspective. In Robert's analysis, why Mm -hmm. did they ultimately end affirmative action? That's really the critical question, Jade. And they said, uh, what happens is by the use of race, it uh, violates, according to uh, Chief Justice Roberts, the twin commands of the 14th Amendment. One is that uh, race can never be a negative factor with respect to government action. And two, that race can never operate as a stereotype. And the way race-conscious admissions offend that is that uh, it does operate as a negative factor with respect to uh, Asian uh, students in particular, because uh, Chief Justice Roberts said college admissions is a zero-sum game, so that if you're favoring someone on the basis of their race, taking affirmative action in their favor, it necessarily means you're taking negative action uh, with respect to uh, a disfavored group who would otherwise get the slot. With respect to the uh, bar on stereotyping, uh, what Chief Justice Roberts said is that these programs, both at UNC and Harvard, assume that uh, underrepresented minorities all think alike, and that is uh, offensive and incorrect and uh, not allowed by the 14th Amendment. The third issue was that the uh, 14th Amendment requires uh, that any kind of race consciousness have some sort of a uh, time limitation, an end point. And he said that conceptually, he couldn't see that in either of these two programs. And for all of those reasons, uh, the uh, six to three majority said race could not be used in college and university admissions, both public and private. This is an interesting case in that several of the justices have very close connections to the subject being ruled on. What can you tell us about that? Well, that was the interesting thing about Justice uh, Sotomayor's dissent, and she wrote a very long dissent. In fact, her dissent was longer than the uh, than the majority opinion I- itself. And she said, well, look, the closest data point about the effectiveness and usefulness of affirmative action is that the three justices of color, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Brown-Jackson, all attended elite institutions with race-conscious programs. And uh, notwithstanding that, they actually had very successful uh, careers without any kind of a stigma or anything like that. So uh, if there is any question about the usefulness of, uh, of race-conscious admissions as a pipeline to the highest level uh, of uh, a wide range of professions, uh, the nearest evidence that the justices have suggests that it is. You know, let's talk about legacy admissions here for a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. That admission process was implemented in the 1920s um, as a way to ensure white Protestant students were given preference in the admission process while diminishing the enrollment of Jews, Catholics, uh, and immigrants. Of course, people of color weren't even allowed to go to these institutions at the time. Uh, To this day, 70% of legacy admissions are white students. Um, Why was that not considered? Well, first of all, it wasn't raised by the uh, plaintiffs in in this case, the Students for Fair Admissions, that the issues can only be those uh, that are brought uh, to the court. 
you are certainly correct in your history, Jade, about the history of legacy admissions. But on their face, legacy admissions simply say that you have a leg up if your uh, father or grandfather or, or some relative attended this institution, keeping it all in the family. It does have the effect, as you have put it, of a, a racial favoritism in a sense. But on the face, it is not. Uh, racially uh, motivated. That may be a question, though, down the line for the reasons you have just given, Jade, in your accurate history lesson that the court will have to confront uh, down the line. Um, so then let's press rewind here for a bit. Um, what exactly is affirmative action for people who don't have a clear idea of what that is? And also, why was it put in place? Let's talk about that. Affirmative action, as its name implies, is positive action to achieve a certain result or advance a particular policy goal. Uh, the uh, phrase generally is initially used in the early 1960s by uh, John, President John F. Kennedy and then famously used and uh, implemented by Lyndon B. Johnson, who essentially said uh, of the need for affirmative action, you don't remove the shackles of someone who has been shackled for a long time uh, in a race, remove them and say, all right, now we're going to play fair because obviously there is going to be an impact of having been shackled all this time. So the idea of affirmative action is to uh, give those people an edge to remove the impediment that has been incurred by having those shackles for so long. Can you walk us through any of the dissenting opinions? Yes. The dissenting opinion essentially said in one form or another race matters. We have to look at that fact that it continues to have an impact. And uh, to talk about some formalistic ideal of colorblindness uh, doesn't make sense given that it continues to matter. And Justice uh, Brown Jackson wrote a dissent in the UNC case, because of course she wasn't participating in the Harvard case. And she said, quote, uh, today's decision will undoubtedly extend the duration of our country's need for race consciousness because the justification for admissions programs that account for race is inseparable from the race-linked gaps in health, wealth, and well-being that still exist in our society, the closure of which today's decision will forestall. What she was saying was that if we are not going to recognize that the Equal Protection Clause, and by extension t Title VI, uh, require the consideration of race. If we uh, use the pink elephant, where we try not to think about it, but it's always in our minds anyway, uh, the fact is that uh, these gaps are going to uh, persist, not only in the college admissions, but also the effects that uh, flow from that. The interesting thing in Justice Sotomayor's dissent, again, was this idea of rejecting the idea of this colorblind ideal. When I was a first-year Harvard Law student, I attended the Black Law Students uh, Spring Conference, and uh, then-Judge Damon Keith of the Sixth Circuit gave a speech. Now, remember, this would have been in 1987, so it was a long time ago, and I still remember what he said. He said that in America, colorblindness is a tradition without a past. That was essentially the point that Justice Sotomayor and Justice Brown-Jackson made. Even Justice Thomas, in a very long uh, dissent, conceded that the Constitution is not and never has been, at least formally, uh, color uh, blind. 
And uh, what the dissent said was that the unwillingness to look at reality uh, in the face with respect to programs that consider race not as a dispositive factor, but as one factor, uh, is not true to the promise, the full promise of the 14th Amendment, which was enacted in the aftermath of the Civil War. Given that, do you look at Justice Roberts' opinion as a bit disingenuous? Well, I would never say that about a majority opinion of the Supreme Court as an officer of the bar myself. I will say that the dissenting opinions do take some of his assumptions to task about uh, whether race uh, still appropriately ought to be given consideration with respect to college admissions, and not just college admissions, but also this could have implications down the line with respect to employment and other issues. One of the interesting things about Chief Justice Roberts' opinion is that there's an interesting footnote where he says, well, uh, the military says that maybe affirmative action, maybe the, the need for race consciousness may be necessary when we're talking about service academies, which are very, very selective. Uh, but those issues are distinct in that context. And so we're not going to consider whether race may be allowed uh, because of the purposes served by a diverse uh, military in the uh, admissions process in Selective Service Academy. And what was interesting is that then what you had was uh, Justice Brown Jackson saying that, quote, the court has come to rest on the bottom line conclusion that racial diversity in higher education is only worth potentially preserving insofar as it might be needed to prepare black Americans and other underrepresented minorities for success in the bunker, not the boardroom, close quote. All right. I want to turn now to some other cases. Let's start with the court's rejection of Biden's student death relief plan. Well, the six, the same six to three majority that struck down these affirmative action programs uh, said the Biden administration overstepped its authority by using the HEROES Act of 2003. Uh, it went too far. The act on its face did not give the Biden administration that kind of authority. That was legal analyst Dan Eaton with the law firm Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek breaking down the Supreme Court decisions. Coming up, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Kevin Kumashiro on where Asian Americans fit into the issue of affirmative action. Asian Americans, because we're held up as the, the mascots or the victims, we also get targeted because rightfully so, people are saying, well, aren't you preventing us from pushing forward on race conscious interventions? You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We've been talking about the Supreme Court's recent rulings on student debt and affirmative action and its impact on higher education. Asian Americans have long been at the center of the affirmative action debate. The Students for Fair Admissions, the plaintiffs in the affirmative action case, relied heavily on the stories of Asian Americans in their push to end race-conscious college admissions. However, no Asian Americans came forward to testify about experiencing discrimination, and the group is led by activist Ed Bloom, who is white. This has fueled concerns over how the community has been used as a wedge in this issue and against race-conscious policies in general. Here to talk more about where Asian Americans fit in this debate is Dr. Kevin Kumashiro. He is an educational policy expert and former dean of the University of San Francisco School of Education. And Dr. Kumashiro, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Jade. It's great to be part of this conversation. So glad to have you. So first, I want to take a step back. What's the history behind affirmative action, particularly in education? Yeah, it's. I think it's so important that we understand how we got to this moment because the narratives and the understandings of affirmative action have absolutely changed quite significantly at several times um, over the past half a century. So we know, for example, that as a federal initiative during the Kennedy administration, affirmative action was pushed, but it was pushed as a remedy for uh, historic and systemic injustices, particularly racial injustices. And why that's important to remember is because when affirmative action then hits the Supreme Court regarding college admissions, the first time in 1978, that understanding of affirmative action shifted. You know, in its ruling in 1978, the Supreme Court said that colleges cannot have racial quotas. In other words, race cannot override all other factors, but race can be considered if it's part of a bigger picture of what sometimes is called a whole person or holistic review of students. If you look at a number of things and race is one of those factors. And furthermore, race can be considered if the university argues that racial diversity is necessary for a high quality educational experience. This is sometimes called the diversity rationale for affirmative action. So if diversity is important to you and affirmative action or the consideration of race helps to build that diverse class, then affirmative action is allowable. And for three cases, 1978, 2003, 2016, the Supreme Court continued to make that particular argument. Also, can you talk about how affirmative action works? I think there's um, this thought that it is a handout to people of color who are trying to enter into college. Can you explain how affirmative action actually works? Universities like Harvard and UNC, these are competitive universities that have a lot of applicants, and so they try to come up with ways to build a more racially and racially diverse and diverse in other ways classes. Their processes are very similar to many other competitive universities. So this is why the Supreme Court is going to have reverberating effects around the country. And what these universities do is they come up with a list. UNC is a good example. They have 40 things that they look at when they try to evaluate students. And race is one of those things that they look at. And the argument that both Harvard and UNC put forward is that we're not simply trying to 
cream off the, the sort of highest performing students using narrow measures of achievement, like standardized test scores or GPA, that we want to look at the whole child, the whole student, look at all that they bring, and we want to intentionally create a class that reflects the diversity of the world. And just to add to this mix, there are other ways that students can get in to universities that in some ways bypass or maybe is part of holistic review, but certain criteria raise up their chances of getting in. And this is sometimes called the, in Harvard's language, the ALDC category, which includes athletic recruits, a legacy admits, which is children or relatives of alum, children of donors, and children of faculty and staff. And these students are also getting into universities without necessarily going to the same review that others is not based on merit. And unfortunately, these students, especially legacy admits, children of faculty, children of wealthy donors, tend to far and away be more likely to be white. The Asian American community is often considered a wedge in this battle over affirmative action. Can you break that down for us? So in the 1960s, in the midst of the civil rights movement, you begin to see media reports and a lot of people, a lot of narratives out there, a lot of people talking about how Asian Americans are the so-called model minority. They're the model for all other minority groups. Why? Because through their hard work and perseverance, they've made it. They've achieved the American dream. Now, there was a lot of evidence even at the time that Asian Americans were not making it in all these ways. But that story persisted, it hit the media, and it has persisted even till today. Why? Many of us would argue because of its political significance, right? Here, really, we see the beginning of the kind of ideological groundwork being laid for how you challenge claims of systemic racism. You hold up one group that you say not only is evidence that there isn't racism, but you also hold up this group as a way to say when you come up with a race conscious intervention, it might actually harm this group. It might actually harm Asian Americans. This is how Asian Americans serve as a wedge against cross-racial solidarity building. And it's also why in the 1960s, in the 1980s in California, and even right now, you're seeing a flare-up of, it's one of the contributors to anti-Asian bias and sentiment, right? Asian Americans, because we're held up as the, the mascots or the victims, we also get targeted because Rightfully so, people are saying, well, aren't you preventing us from pushing forward on race-conscious interventions? And, you know, we know that Asian Americans are demographically overrepresented in elite colleges and community colleges. Why might Asian Americans feel they are at a disadvantage in the admissions process? Yeah, you know, in a lot of the in my own conversations, like sometimes I'll give a presentation and then after my presentations, Asian American students or alum will come up to me and say, you know, um, I don't agree with affirmative action. And one of the common reasons people bring up is because they themselves have experienced discrimination and bias in their, you know, K-12 schools. I remember a student who said, I remember people teasing me because of my um, accent or teachers never calling on me or not paying much attention to me. And, you know, like, I want to be evaluated on something more objective. And for some people, we've, you know, we seem to buy into the story that grade, but even more so standardized test scores are an objective measure of achievement. I think another 
reason though is like this bigger picture that I'm I find myself wanting to talk more and more about when I'm in conversations with affirmative action, which is we we Asian Americans and otherwise often believe that education should be about individual success. Like who should get into the top colleges? Those who've been most successful so far. And what's the role of colleges? It's to prepare you to succeed even more when you finish college. <laughs> it's all about sort of the individual output and individual success. And I would say, I want us to rethink what we think higher education and education in general should be about. Should it be about the individual competitiveness and success? Or should it be about the collective common good? Should it be about something bigger? Yeah. You know, a poll by the Pew Research Center found that more than half of Asian Americans support affirmative action. So uh, I'm curious, do you think there's a misconception here about the extent to which Asian Americans are even involved in this fight against affirmative action? Yeah, I'm super appreciating your question and also the way that you opened up our conversation by pointing to the fact that Asian Americans, you know, there were not a single, there is not a single Asian American individual plaintiff in this case. Asian Americans do not lead the organization leading the charge. Asian Americans didn't testify in this case. I was just a few days ago in an interview where someone was like, okay, so why are Asian Americans leading the charge on this? And I'm like, actually, Asian Americans weren't leading the charge on this. We're held up, however, as the face of those who are most targeted. So I, I do think that you know, there are some Asian Americans, absolutely, who are anti-affirmative action. But our job is to do two things. A, we have a lot of work among Asian Americans to build our own capacity to organize and to speak out and push back. But we also have the work in the larger society to clear up misconceptions and disinformation about who's leading these charges and why. You know, you mentioned Students for Fair Admission, Edward Bloom. Edward Bloom was also one of the organizers around voter disenfranchisement, court cases and legislation. And the interconnections among groups that are attacking the democratizing role of education is far and widespread. Seeing the bigger picture, making the connections is one of the ways I think that we clarify the role that Asian Americans are also playing to uphold race-conscious interventions. And, you know, how will this decision uh, from the Supreme Court affect Asian American students from low-income families and their opportunity to get into these elite colleges? Yeah, there was a really interesting study published in 2021 out of Georgetown. What it wanted to know was, if you get rid of affirmative action, and even more so, you get rid of holistic review, and you only look at standardized test scores, what happens to um, admissions of the people who have been admitted? Would they, would they have been admitted or not? And what the Georgetown study found was that there would be a small increase in the number of Asian American students that would be admitted. However, those students who would be far less likely to get in would be the low-income Asian American students. And that should not be surprising, right, given how closely tied standardized test scores are to family wealth and social economic status. So it is a reminder that Asian American students benefit from affirmative action too, that it might block, in so-called block, some Asian Americans from getting in, but a lot of Asian Americans benefit 
from a holistic review that considers other aspects of who they are that are typically underrepresented or underserved in our educational institutions, like being low income, like being first, first generation, like being an English language learner, like being a recent immigrant or refugee, and so on. And if we want to think about what's happening with Asian Americans, we cannot, we should never paint this kind of one stroke picture of who Asian Americans are. It's a very diverse class. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind as we think about or as we dismantle the notion that there is this monolithic Asian American group. You know, despite its original intent, some advocates say affirmative action actually just hasn't gone far enough in fighting systemic discrimination and systemic racism on college campuses. Why do you think that is and what more can be done? You're reminding me of a conversation I had recently with an elite university. It wasn't Harvard, but it was something comparable um, that was wanting to know how it can diversify its student population and in particular, how it can increase its racial diversity. And I began by saying, can you tell me what you're doing so far? And they talked about their recruitment and their admissions practices. And I said, you know, those all sound great. But to me, if you want to increase the racial diversity of your student population, you can't only look at your recruitment and admissions processes, even if it's a really robust affirmative action admissions process. Why? Because to me, impacting the experiences of students and impacting the capacity of a university to recruit and retain and successfully graduate its students is pretty much everything that happens in that university. Like what influences a student not just to want to come here, but to stay and persist and succeed are things like what's being taught in the curriculum. What kind of connections are there to the community? What do the demographics of your faculty, staff and leadership look like? How involved are students in governance and decision making? How do you spend your money? What do the student support services look like? What is the climate like on this campus? All of those things impact your ability to recruit and retain and graduate of racially diverse and any in any way diverse student population. And those are really, really hard things to change. So transforming universities to be able to serve a more diverse population, and more importantly, to be able to serve a more democratizing function in society requires that we examine many aspects of that university. And I think this is one of the reasons why I would join those who say affirmative action was never a panacea. It was never the solution to all of our problems. Affirmative action needs to be thought of as one slice of a really big pie or a picture or whatever. It needs to be one of a number of interconnected strategies that are about transforming that university and, you know, transforming how we think about our staffing and our curriculum and all of that is a larger project that many people don't want to tackle. It's much easier to imagine just bringing people here. But one final thing I'll say about this is I, what I said to this university is if all you do is change your recruitment and admissions processes, you might want to think about how you're recruiting a more diverse student population into a university that was never designed to serve them. You actually have to change the university. And that's where I think our larger project lies next. I've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Kumashiro. He is an educational policy expert and former dean of the University of San Francisco's School of Education. Dr. Kumashiro, it has been such a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for your time and insight. 
Thanks so much for having me and for covering these really important issues. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the Supreme Court's rulings. Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. You may hear yourself on the radio. Still ahead, KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez joins us to talk about how students are responding to decisions on student loan forgiveness and affirmative action. They have used race as one factor in the equation of accepting students into their university. And basically, that has now ended. That is not an option for them. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. So the Supreme Court's decisions to strike down student loan forgiveness and end affirmative action in higher education will have a big impact on California's 91 private universities, also students and even alumni Michelle Sequeros from the Campaign for College Opportunity says the path to college just narrowed for many people. We know that the future of our country depends on everyone having an opportunity to go to college. And we certainly need to ensure that that opportunity exists at every college and university, including the most selective institutions in our nation. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has been covering the impact of these decisions and joins us now. M.G., welcome back to Midday Edition. Good to be with you, Jade. Glad to have you. So what's been the reaction from local private universities to this decision? Well, before we go there, let's talk about one of the universities involved in the case, and that was Harvard University. Uh, Right after the decision came down, Claudine Gay, who is the president-elect at Harvard, said, We will comply with the Supreme Court's decision, but it does not change our values. As a thriving, diverse, intellectual community, it is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. So that's what Harvard had to say, and we reached out to the University of San Diego here, of course, in San Diego County. And the president put out a very brief written statement that said, in part, The exact scope and implications for colleges and universities across the country will need to be carefully assessed in the coming weeks and months. USD has a longstanding commitment to inclusiveness, diversity, and opportunity for all, and will continue to pursue these ideals within the bounds of the law. So paraphrasing that a bit, uh, the university is not saying much. They are acknowledging what the Supreme Court has done, and I think they kind of have to figure it out. We also went to Point Loma Nazarene University, another private university here in San Diego. They are not making any comments, although they did allow us on their campus, and uh, students are basically saying they think 
diversity is a requirement for a good academic community. Well, do we know how institutions like USD and Point Loma Nazarene are approaching the admissions process differently as a result of this decision? Well, we won't know that until uh, the new school year as they continue into the admissions process. But what we can tell you is that they have used race as one factor in the equation of accepting students into their university. And basically, that has now ended. That is not an option for them. So they will have to look at different ways to attract students from marginalized communities in order to find more of a balance on campus. Hmm. Well, as we talked about earlier in the show, the passage of Prop 209 back in 1996 banned affirmative action across public colleges and universities in California. So how has that since impacted diversity on campuses across the state? Well, first of all, some people may be surprised to know that California has had a ban on affirmative action in public universities for such a long time. But it is true uh, that has been in effect since 1996, and it is withheld uh, through several legal challenges. What we found with that is in 1997, 98, 99, in those first years, there was a huge drop in minority Uh, students, the number of minority students accepted, and also students from other marginalized communities. What ended up happening is that over time and using other programs, they were able to find much more of a balance. But certainly that did not happen overnight. And what's expected here is a similar situation in the first year or so of this decision being put into effect there no doubt will be a significant drop in the number of minority students being accepted. Hmm. Has diversity on those campuses come back up to where they used to be before this uh, 1996 ruling? Any university will tell you they are a diverse campus. That is what they are almost programmed to say. And the truth is, uh, there is diversity. But uh, it's also measured by different factors. So uh, when you talk about diversity, are we talking about ethnic diversity? Are we talking about men versus women? Are we talking about uh, other marginalized communities? So the answer is, at least here in California, those numbers uh, did come back and uh, have balanced out. But again, that's 1996 to present day, 2023. So it will take time no matter what universities decide they're going to do. Well, how have these institutions uh, tried to get a more diverse student body since that 96 ruling? Jade, it all comes down to recruitment, Uh, going out into these communities and trying to reach Uh, student candidates and meet them where they are, if you will. Because a lot, you'll you'll have to remember, there's systematic uh, racism in this country. There are minority uh, communities that don't trust authority figures uh, or don't believe that they deserve to be in these prestigious universities of higher learning. So that's part of the challenge is getting past that and making campuses more inviting, but more importantly, going out one-on-one, doing recruitment drives in communities um, that need to be welcomed, if you will, onto campuses at some of the most prestigious schools in the country. So, MG, like, I was reading that the impact here in California of, of 209 is that uh, the numbers significantly dropped on campuses and that they've come up, but they've not reached the point of where they were before. 
Jade, the California ban took effect for the first time with the incoming class of 1998. And what we found back then was that the numbers plummeted. Uh, That year, enrollment among black and Latino students at UCLA and UC Berkeley, for instance, fell by a whopping 40%. And uh, universities continued to struggle after that to try to bring uh, students back. What has happened more recently in order to help those numbers is been to uh, get do away with standardized test scores as a requirement for many minority students. Also, uh, there was a point in the last many years where universities looked at the highest scoring students in certain high schools and guaranteed them admission into a UC school. So it has not been perfect, it has not been consistent, but universities continue to try to find options to equal out or balance diverse campuses. You know, this decision targeted race-conscious admissions practices, with the exception of, of military academies, but somehow legacy admissions practices are still in place. Can you explain how those work? That is really the question. Uh, How they work is very simple. You have somebody who went to the university ahead of you, uh, and you basically are accepted because of your legacy, because mom or dad went to that university or a brother. Uh, And it's that simple. And so people are getting uh, admitted to universities like Harvard or Princeton or other Ivy League schools just because they were family members of other students um, in the past. And that's how legacy works. And so there really is, you know, well, where's the the balance in that? Where's the fairness in that? And that's really the question now. They want to ban affirmative action, but have done nothing. And when I'm talking about the Supreme Court, uh, I'm talking about the Supreme Court, I should say, there's nothing being done about legacy admissions. Can you talk about how legacy admissions don't attribute to diversity on campuses? Well, it's very simple. The, uh, you know, who has already been on campus are going to uh, encourage their family members to um, to apply and to be accepted. So if you have a predominantly white campus, then you're going to get the legacy of that, which just means there's not much diversity. How do you get in the door, if you will? Um, and so some some ways of handling it, as we discussed, is around recruitment, going out into those communities. But that doesn't really affect legacy because you had to have already had somebody there in order to be accepted. All right. So what is the next step in this story? What will you be watching for next when it comes to San Diego's private colleges and universities? Well, it won't come quickly. I can tell you that, Jade. Uh, What we will be looking for are numbers. So in the next school year, how many minorities are accepted versus the year prior? And again, you've always got to, there was before COVID and after COVID. So you've got to factor that into the equation. So we will be looking at the numbers, at the stats, if you will, but uh, we don't expect anything significant anytime soon. So this is really going to be ongoing. So I would say we would have a better indicator probably in two years and three years as to what those numbers look like. But back in 1996 here in California, within a year or so, those numbers did plunge. So we'll have to wait to see. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. I'm joined by KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. Now, M.G., another ruling the Supreme Court announced last week took aim at President Biden's $400 billion student loan forgiveness plan. 
Can you remind us what that program was and who it was intended to help? Well, it was supposed to help those uh, who are in student debt. Uh, uh, present company included. Um, there are a lot of people who have debt as much as $80,000, $100,000. And so it, in some regards, it was considered a drop in the bucket, and it was also considered a step in the right direction. So those who would benefit the most were those who had, say, 10000 or $20,000 in debt, and the hope was that that would be erased. What the Supreme Court basically said is that is not something the president can facilitate through an executive order, and it should have been decided by Congress. And of course, we know what Congress is like these days. Uh, It is hard to find any kind of agreement um, with both sides of the aisle. So that's where we are now. It is no longer an option, although the president has said he's going to come up with a different way to do it. So whether that goes against what the Supreme Court decided or whether it's a new option, we'll have to wait to see. Can you put into perspective for us just how much student debt is and how many are affected by it today? Trillions of dollars. That's trillions with a T. That's a big number. And it's no secret um, if, you know, our listeners out there are saying, oh, yeah, I've got debt. And if they don't, they've got a relative or a friend, and they're very aware of what it can do. And it is so against the idea that we go and get educated so that we can get jobs. The problem with that is it costs us so much money to get educated that we then, you know, have to find jobs that we can't that would try to pay that debt off. And then the interest, that's really what kills people. The interest that continues to build with every month, every year that passes on that debt. Mm. You spoke to a UC San Diego graduate named Isabella Newell, and um, here was her reaction to the decision. I mean, even in high school, I know that my teachers still were paying off their debt. And so I just think that, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's something that I think everyone should be able to graduate and not have that stress of debt because it puts, it relieves the pressure, but it also gives you a sense of freedom. Can you tell us more about Isabella's story and her college experience? She is one of the lucky ones, Jade, in that she was able to graduate from UCSD debt-free. But here is kind of how it worked for her. Number one, she's first-generation uh, college. So that's significant because of the opportunities that are open to her. A lot of people, she suggests, don't spend the time to research those grants, those scholarships that are available, especially to first-generation students uh, attending college. And so that was a really big part of it. Um, And then she also lived with her parents for a while. That's a familiar story. A lot of people have to do that. But it was a conscious effort that she made to, A, research, and B, really budget and save And it helped that at UCSD, there are scholarships available to first-generation students. And in her case, she got $20,000. That's a lot of money that can be applied to her tuition, to her books, to whatever, in order to get her to graduate. And it worked for her. In his reaction to last week's ruling, President Biden called the court's decision a mistake and said he is, quote, not going to stop fighting to deliver borrowers what they need, particularly those at the bottom end of the economic scale. Do we have any idea how Biden intends to do that? 
We really don't. But what we know is that he has said just that, that this is not the end of it. Um, It certainly is the end of the plan, as he presented, that would offer up to $20,000 relief to a lot of, uh, you know, students who who have student loan debt. But we will have to wait to see because at this point we don't know what that might look like. But the Supreme Court made it very clear. They voted it down because they said the president does not have the authority to do this through executive order and it has to be handled through the Congress. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you. Thank you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the Supreme Court's recent decisions. Give us a call at 619-452-0228 and leave a message. You may just hear yourself on the radio. Or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast wherever you listen. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.